Hello and welcome to the second episode of The Week in Review. I'm Michael Curzon and I'm joined again by Luke Perry this week. Now Luke, last week you talked about censorship and the riots at Capitol Hill. Now it just so happened that only an hour after we finished recording, uh, probably the biggest news of the week took place, which was the banning of Donald Trump from Twitter. What did you make of that and also the unfortunate timing on our end? Well, um, well, with the social media, these things happen in the blink of an eye. And uh, remember what I said last week about Trump being banned from social media. I said Facebook, Twitter may have had some justification for that, but do, do not hold that view anymore. I think if he is inciting terrorism, it should, of course, go through a court of law. I mean, even Nancy Pelosi's impe current impeachment proceedings are um, a much better alternative than um, big tech giants censoring them. Um, the democratically elected president of the United States. Hmm. And naturally, that's that's pretty much the topic that you've chosen again this week. A more yeah. a more broad uh, discussion on big tech. So we'll, we'll go into that soon. Uh, but we're also joined again by uh, SD Wicket. Now, Sam, you you um, had a couple of ideas for topics this week. One of them, which you almost chose but decided not to in the end, was uh, the recent uh, university, uh, particularly the Cambridge University offers. Uh, reduction. What did you make of them? Well, I mean, as you were saying, Michael, it's um, it, this has been happening in universities for a while now. But we 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 always thought that Oxbridge would be that last bastion of um, I, I don't want to say elitism, but uh, of academic prowess. But uh, it seems that uh, the mighty have fallen, and even Cambridge has accepted a slide into uh, mediocrity. Um, by uh, offering uh, BBB uh, students access, which is, I mean, sounds lovely, but uh, for Cambridge, it's not the, be the best move. But I have gone with a different story that we'll get into later on. Yeah, but um, I thought I'd start this week. Um, I must admit, last week, when I decided to talk about uh, talk radios uh, banning by YouTube, I was a little begrudged because as with pretty much every week of the last year, and I'm sure this year already from, from the way events are happening, I'd wanted really to talk about the lockdown. Um, but after some of the stories which came out this week, I thought it would be acceptable to, to go into that area, which we, we cover so much. The week started really with Boris Johnson uh, supposedly breaking the regulations, although whether he did or not is unsure. I think he was cycling seven miles away from Downing Street. Um, but he was let off the hook because he hadn't started seven miles away and he ended up seven miles away, which is allowed. But compared to another story this week, uh, which caught my eye two days ago, I thought that was quite interesting. Um, a story of a, a woman and her husband in Wales who went to visit the, the woman's mother, 94-year-old, who's in a care home and is suffering from see her at a distance. But because she dared to travel 10 miles away from her home, she was slapped with a £60 fine. And I'm sure because of that was deterred from carrying out the same action again. And that is, of course, just going to see her mother, who suffers from dementia, on the other side of a window to have a brief moment of humanity in all this lockdown chaos. I mean, how can, how can we survive as a civilization, Luke, if we can't even talk to people who are suffering severe health problems? and for whom without these brief moments of conversation and love just won't be able to carry on living any longer. I'm going to give you the very easy and very harsh answer is, is that we can't. We, we cannot keep on living like this. I mean, even after the first lockdown, it 
back in oh my god march 2020 that lasted three months crippling and every day it continues these the humanity becomes even less i mean we've had we're having an epidemic of mental health problems particularly a younger lung among just the young but it's beginning to affect it's affecting old people as well particularly pe uh, elderly people in care homes who've been unable to see their families for god knows how long how long and um it, if you could say if you said last year that, that something like this would happen in, in the western world it'd be taken for a fall but the, the fool's luck has paid off it seems mm. I mean, as you said this started in march now, another report uh, released by The Guardian this week, uh, a barrister had worked out that the, the English COVID rules have changed 64 times since March. Now, the government has said you know, that the rules are simple, it's easy to follow, it's just about common sense, all this. But the rules have changed 64 times in that space of time. I mean, how are people supposed to keep track of what's going on, on what they are or aren't allowed to do, especially when the rules are so arbitrary and in many cases silly and indeed cruel as well. Sam, have you um, anything in the news relating to lockdown this week which has struck your eye? Uh, yes, so uh, a couple of things there and it, it's, it's relevant to what both of you said. Um, the first thing is that as of Wednesday, it's probably increased now, but up to 45,000 fines have been handed out by police. We've, we've all seen the videos of, of you know, police uh, getting a bit too high on the power that this, this is affording them. Uh, while also not following the rules. We, we've seen videos of, you know, policemen um, all sat in restaurants together breaking the rules. Uh, and another, another thing is a, a, a great quote from uh, Sir Graham Brady, who was the Tory backbench leader, who uh, described these laws as uh, pointless and um, removing the hope from Britain. I think is, it's, it's, it's almost something too abstract for it to be really paid much mind by lawmakers, but is what's happening. I mean, you know, we've all we've all had a year of our lives taken from us, and and the effects of that on, on on our well-being and you know plans and hopes for the future is is massive, and we aren't we we aren't even really seeing it yet. What we'll we'll begin to see it you know, next year when the the real crisis hits economically and people are you know, worse off than they've ever been. Yeah, I mean, one it made me laugh. The the cover of the Telegraph today. Well, I say it made me laugh in a, in a despairing sort of manner. There was a, a couple who, who tragically, an elderly couple, tragically both had coronavirus, and are, um, if they're not already, they were in a, in a terminal state. Um, but the the report below this is a very sinister wording. It says the daughter of a woman stricken with coronavirus has thanked a hospital for allowing her parents to meet for the last time. We're thanking hospitals now for allowing a husband and wife who have been with each other their whole life, who've had children together, grown up together, had all their experiences together, for allowing them, for giving them the mercy of holding hands for one last time. What kind of world does that happen in? I, I remember a report a little while ago as well, must be three months ago now, of a woman who chose to die alone because she couldn't choose between her four children, uh, which one of them was allowed to sit by her bed as she died, since the restrictions allowed uh, only a limited number of people to do this. It's completely inhumane and insane and very cruel as well. We've had quite a few comments on um, an article we wrote a couple of months ago in which we said, it was actually originally the second lockdown, but we rebranded it for the, for the third, saying that it was cruel, disproportionate and, um, and inhumane. I don't think those words go far enough. I'm not sure there are 
the words in the English language to explain just quite how hideous some of these restrictions are. Yet the way it's being spun, especially by the media, which is being completely supine at the moment, is that we should thank the government or thank the authorities when the opposite happens. It seems completely the wrong way to go about this. Yeah, and it's being spun by uh, average people too. I mean, um, you know, you know, we've all heard it. Um, if you if you question the effectivity of, of lockdown or, or if there's any desire to you know meet with people, then you're you're trying to kill Granny, right? Or you have blood on your hands, or you know, this death toll is partially your fault. I mean, uh, it it has been so drip fed into the public over the over the last year that. Um, anything other than uh, un, you know, unquestioning obedience to these new rules is, is uh, tantamount to murder. Mm. I think you made an interesting point a minute ago as well, Sam, about the, the number of fines which have now been handed out. Uh, there's a report today that uh, the police are issuing 66 times more COVID fines than they did in the first lockdown, which I thought raised an interesting point. We keep on hearing at the moment, we're almost there, we're getting there. The approach is working. It's not much longer. People are being vaccinated, and when the vaccine program has been completely rolled out, we'll go completely back to new, uh, back to normality. Yet it seems to me, and, and William Parker wrote a, a good piece and a, a striking piece for us on online a couple of days ago, that things actually are getting worse. Restrictions are getting tougher and tougher. The police are enforcing them more commonly. Luke, when? If it will, it seems difficult to imagine that it will at the minute, but I, I know it will at some time. But when do you think this will end? Might they bring restrictions back in December? Might we go even into 2022? Or could it be sooner than that with the, the vaccination rollout? Don't ask me to predict the future, but what we can do is, is look to the past. And uh, I don't think many of us were on pre-9-11 air flights, but as soon as that terrorist attack happened and the whole... It, with. 9-11 was just a society erupting event, completely changed the nature of international security and international travel. And they brought all, all these measures onto air flights. The war on terror came, the Patriot Act came in the United States. And with COVID, we might be, be seeing something similar. I know also read William Parker's point earlier today, and that some of the residue on the, the tactics that we use to fight against coronavirus, when coronavirus goes through vaccine or exposure, however, some of these things will remain because this this relationship between the people and the state has changed. It's more utilitarian, but utilitarian from a public health view. Everything is all about public safety and protecting people from very mild illnesses. And so we could expect to see wearing masks at work from now on. If, even when coronavirus is over and I'll go back to my job at McDonald's in the summer, I uh, think <laughs> masks will be a permanent feature. Um, I think people will take the flu differently as well. I mean, we heard Chris Whitty saying that there'll be, there might have to be a winter lockdown for a flu, for the seasonal flu outbreak, which we've never happened before. And we seem to cope with it just fine, usually. So I, th I think it, it will, it will um, have reverberating consequences for society and some of it we'll never be able to get rid of. Also, yeah, lockdowns are... Uh unprecedented right i mean they, they they weren't enforced during the spanish flu they weren't enforced during you know, uh swine flu avian flu sars mers could it you know just wearing my tinfoil hat here could, could that be a thing where you know now 
an uptick in terrorism could lead to a lockdown or you know could this this um i mean because the 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 public appetite for this has, has been gauged carefully over the last year and it seems overwhelmingly people will go along with it if if they think it'll, it'll keep them safe um which is part of a wider worrying trend that we're valuing safety above uh, our freedom yeah well the point is um I think you're right that it could be used, um, that lockdowns could be justified in other, in other circumstances. The reason being is that the, the government and the media joining with the government has persuaded many people that they work. Now, they may work in, in lowering infection rates or hospitalisation, say, but it's actually very hard to uh, distinguish whether these things happen when they do uh, because of the lockdown or due to other circumstances. So we've seen recently in the mail, it was reported yesterday in uh, government advisors, including uh, ministers as well, so including Chris Patel, were saying the, the lockdown is working because rates are falling now. But we, we saw in a number of tier four areas, we learned about three days ago, that infection rates were falling before the new lockdown was imposed. And hospital uh, rates are also lowering, um, but at a time at which it's too early to attribute that to the lockdown. So we're told that they work, which is why we're in the third one now, because people think that the first and the second worked. But it's very hard to actually pin um, cause with causation on this, uh, affecting and causation. And, and Luke, I wanted to go back to your point on 9-11, which I thought was very interesting. Now, you, you said at the beginning of that, we um, may not have flown pre 9-11 or if we did we were would have been too young to remember certainly a case for me i can't remember a, a flight before this time um but i know them since and for us the the scanning the searching um being asked to pack the bags all stuff like this it's sort of common experience points which we're used to now we don't question it always because it's happened our whole thinking lives. Whereas I remember that Hitchens uh, a little while ago talked about his experiences of going through airports and that every time he has to be searched and they, they scan for metal on his body and stuff like that, this, that, he, that he, he's shaking inside his skin and that it's completely unhuman to him. And I think that's a, an interesting point that um, people already, especially younger people, being brought up in this time and seeing lockdowns as being a fairly usual thing um will become accustomed to it and won't challenge it when asked to bring it on again and especially with the measures like masks and social distancing i think they're there to stay for a very long time and even if they were removed at a point they could quite easily be introduced again at time as you say of uh, seasonal flu or different viruses or infections which uh, come into society so I, I think this is going to be with us quite a lot longer than many people like to think or hope at the very least, the the public paranoia will stay. Mm. Um, and this one last point on this for me is that um, people that I I really despair for here is is kids aged you know uh, three to six because I mean like people like us we can you know we're we remember life before this you know, very clearly a lot of it and we can rationalize our way around this. But if you're you know three to six and you're being socialized within this. You're being socialised at school, at home, to you know, go to school, come straight home, don't go near anyone, um, cover your face. It, it, it's. I think that that's going to lead really last damage on the the generation coming through now. 
and that won't be seen for a couple of years now. We're also um, well, a pandemic happens every uh, every decade, which with um, globalization would be likely to increase at a greater rate of pandemics. And if they're um, willing to go this harsh on um, for what is most of the population a rather mild illness. Lockdowns, well, we've heard of the on and off tactic of the governments. One month there's a lockdown, another month there isn't. That may be um, continued throughout the years. One year a pandemic shows up from wherever in the world, there's another year of lockdowns, and just trying desperately hard to find a vaccine. And then the cycle just repeat when a new disease comes up. Now, you know, people who have, who have challenged uh, lockdown have come under attack. Sam, you mentioned the, the argument being raised that um, we're responsible for murder, say, if you're, if you're against the lockdowns. Toby Young is trending today, um, probably not to his, his, uh, his joy on the matter, since I imagine not many of the, of the trending points are particularly positive. But Luke, this, this ties well onto your um, topic for today, which is about the censorship of conservative voices by big tech. Now, obviously, we said at the beginning, Donald Trump has now been banned by pretty much every platform. I saw, I think, was it Snapchat today that's banned him as well? I didn't even know what it would be Snapchat. Even, even Spotify's got him. I don't know what he can do with Spotify, but hey, no. <laughs> right. no more hit singles from Donald Trump. Um, but how wide a problem is this? Is this, you know, is, is the Trump issue an isolated event or is this something that is going to reverberate down to the rest of us through society and across the world? Uh, I mean, no, far from it. I mean, the big tech oligopoly of Silicon Valley have never been neutral, unbiased actors trying to save us from evil Nazis or domestic terrorists. No, that they are political partisans that have been in league with their country's democratic, their country's liberal establishment, the Democratic Party for um, some time. I mean, the, the Trump ban was just writing on the wall. We all know it was coming. When uh, Trump was running for presidents and Twitter, employees thought that they should censor him anyways when he was on the campaign trail. And the, the double standard is, is just clear to see has been for many years. They buried the Hunter Biden scandal, which would have harmed Joe Biden's um, chances of becoming president. And wanting to you know, fight domestic terrorism by banning centre-right opinions just doesn't hold up when you consider how they treated the, um, the BLM riots last year. I mean, they're part of the establishment that fanned the flames of um, riots, which were more damaging than the US Capitol storming ever was and um all these arguments about um creating your own private company build, building your own service to avoid um big tech censorship is just a non-argument now considering what they've done with parlor they've um big tech the big tech monopoly just banded together and just forced parlor off the internet sh shut down its isps everything the owners cannot access the app anymore it's, it's like being banished from a village yeah. and then being chased down by the villagers in the forest. It's insane. This, this has been happening incrementally for a while now. I mean, the first time yeah. this happened in this sort of you know, cartel type way was Alex Jones. I mean, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and, and defend what he says, but um, what that did was it, it put us down the, you know, the dreaded slippery slope. I mean, you you purge one extreme and then the next thing down becomes the new extreme. And then eventually mm. it gets narrower and narrower. And 
in, in a slightly doom-filled question, I mean, this makes me, this doesn't make me wonder, is the US government now obsolete if the real power of information is held in, you know, unaccountable tech firms in California? Is the, is the presidency now just symbolic? That's the thing with uh, Trump. I mean, no fan of social media. He tried to um, sign executive orders to um, break these monopolies and stop them from censoring people. Now, of course, the big tech candidates will soon be in the White House. And I think censorship is going to ratchet up. As you say, it, it has been incursions for some years now, mild advances. Alex Jones, no one liked him, no one cared. He, he went. Milo Yiannopoulos, the same. No one liked him, no one cared. He went. Now they've done it to the president. And since the Capitol Hill riots, a sort of given them an excuse to crack down even harder again using the justification of domestic terrorism and i, I just i can't see this improving either and you said luke about the the impossibility of people setting up their own businesses their own platforms to to counter this now we talk about big tech i, I was reading earlier um, about the size of these as companies and the word big doesn't do it justice um the, the latest issue of the spectator talks about the topic and um now Ferguson writes that as recently as 2008, not one of them, them being um, Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, Google, Apple, all these, could be found among the world's largest companies by market capitalization. Not one of them. Yet today they occupy first, third and fourth and fifth. They're, they're some of the biggest companies in the world which bear enormous power. And of course, when you consider the fact that these aren't just big companies with a lot of money, but also the way in which um, people now gain their information, socialize with different people, exchange thoughts, produce their own thoughts, challenge their thoughts. The fact that certain voices can be thrown out of the library, so to speak, is really quite worrying. Um, I mean, on the point of Google, say, I think we, we talked about this a little bit last week, and it's slightly different to, um, to tech censorship, but almost the, the way in which these companies order different points of views for people to digest um, it's interesting when you when you search say um, renaissance art on google douglas murray talks about this in his book uh, the madness of crowds rather than bringing up the most well-known and most well-respected figures from the renaissance period it's to bring up figures that nobody has ever heard of usually for um, identity reasons they're brought up to the top and for people um, like us who have who have you know, being brought up in a time where reading was still considered the thing to do. It's not so bad because we can temper these new mediums with our own previously inbuilt learning. But for people who are brought up um, in an age where Macs and, and iPads are given at the age of I don't know, five or six, maybe just as soon as they get to primary school, it can be quite a damaging thing. This is not only the primary, but in many cases, the only source of information, the only way in which people can challenge their thoughts. And the the options of, of of thoughts which are available for people to to read about and to challenge their own are very carefully selected by a very liberal establishment on Silicon Valley. What's the way of challenging this? Well, I I, I think Trump had the right idea. That's because these things have become just as powerful as the state. You need the state to crack this monopoly. We've had antitrust laws in the past which which have dealt with this. Type, well, type of thing but I don't think we've seen it on this scale but it's not just there's a product like shampoo where someone company has a monopoly on it no no this is 
the new public square. And going back to your point, what you said uh, last week, Curzon, that um, we can't see our friends in, in the real world anymore. I mean, if COVID had not been a thing, we might have been sitting around recording this podcast in a beer garden somewhere. But, um, and yeah, this is, um, all I can see is just national governments need to introduce antitrust laws to break it apart, really, and ensure fairness. Going back, going back slightly, the, the, the thing with the, uh, the, the murder of Parler that I find really the, the most disturbing is that it, it wasn't just the App Store and Google. The, the real killer blow was Amazon, because Am- Amazon's main thing is, uh, is cloud um, services. Uh, and through that, so that's like the, that's the source of most of their profit. And through that, they they keep countless services afloat. And by by removing that, that that was the killer blow. Um, you know, and we're talking about you know Dorsey and Zuckerberg, but you know Bezos is just as uh, pernicious here. And also, I believe um, I believe he owns the Washington Post. Bezos. Yeah. Right. Well, it wouldn't it wouldn't be particularly surprising. I mean, we, that, that ties onto a theme which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Sam, of the, <laughs> for want of a better phrase, the incest within politics. Right. The people who have so many connections in so many places and whose partner happens to be a journalist or other partner happens to be in parliament, something like this. It makes it even more difficult to hold these figures to account because the, the organisations which are supposed to be there for scrutiny, such as the press, are so deeply wedded in many ways to uh, the people who they're supposed to be scrutinising. Well, you mentioned there, Sam, um, about the possibility of Jeff Bezos also owning the Washington Post. I've just had a look and he, he, he purchased it in 2013 for $250 million, which is £160 million, pounds, um, off a family which had owned the company for over 80 years. Um, but such is, the, such is the state of the, the paper industry today that um you have to have people with a lot of money to own them otherwise they'll soon go down the pan i mean during the during the lockdown i've been working at a local shop and um i have to i have to bundle up the papers which haven't sold at the end of the night and uh get them to be sent back so that commission can be regained and the piles get bigger and bigger it's the industry which i want to go into work into but it's uh i think that's a very poor poor mistake on my behalf because it's it's completely crumbling even the online stuff has difficulty. Um, but anyway, we'll go from, from one bearer of power and perhaps abuser of power with big tech to another. And Sam, you're going to talk about uh, violations in China this week in a report which has been carried out. Yes, I am. Um, so the Tory party has um, done an early release of a report known as it's called the dark sorry the, the darkness deepens the crackdown of human rights in china 2016 to 2020 um which was an advanced copy was leaked uh, by breitbart and it shows just an absolutely stunning amount of crimes against humanity committed under xi jinping as you know as we can all see china is becoming uh, a more and more hostile entity to the west um uh, I mean, yeah, this is, so this is the, uh, the brief list of uh, things that were highlighted in, in the report. And um, I'll start over with you guys. So mass surveillance, modern day slavery, torture, organ harvesting, the dismantling of promised freedoms in Hong Kong and ethnic 
and um, crimes in Tibet and Xinjiang that have been described as tantamount to genocide. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think I think the Republican Party came out of a similar report last night as well, or yesterday at some time. Um, one story, when you told me you were going to talk about this, one story which caught my eyes in the paper the next day. Um, in the Times, there's a, a story about um, British YouTubers and influencers who are being funded by Beijing to, quote, further its propaganda war. And you've got YouTubers who are, who are talking about... Uh, the camps in China, re-education camps, about why they're not such a bad thing, and um, you know some video titles from influencers such as Western media lies about China and camera surveillance is great in China, and others about um, supporting Huawei, the the tech company from China. It's um, it's such at that level that you know we we know about these things which are happening, but also. Some people, for, for whatever reason, as they come to learn about them, are taking a positive view of what's happening in China at the moment, both uh, technologically with surveillance. I mean, already here we're, we're having hintings of vaccine passports uh, in light of the coronavirus. Luke, how is it that you, why is it rather, do you think it is that some take a positive view to the way in which people behave in uh, in power in China and how do you think it's best to challenge that narrative? Oh, I think that um, those either supporting China have um, in their actions have been are either blind, bribed or threatened. I, I cannot see someone who's grown up in the West traveling to Xinjiang with either with the wool over their eyes and just saying, oh, look, there's nice holiday camps for um, persecuted Muslims. Um, what can we take from here? Well, that the West has to either step up because we haven't had this um, adver an adversarial government this large since probably the time of the Cold War, the Soviet Union. And with uh, technology and money, it's, it's able to um, become more effective at propaganda. At, in, at stretching its tentacles over the West. And um, the West just needs, the Western governments just need to step up that China is a threat. Stop ignoring them. We, we've seen some encouraging trends where um, both the US and the UK have made moves to ban imports from Xinjiang. Um, but the, um, I mean, as the, as the story you mentioned, Michael, shows, um, the new frontier of warfare is information. You, you, you see it with, um, hacking and now with very sophisticated forms of propaganda and that, that, that's, that is what this is. I mean, I don't believe for a second that these, you know, young British YouTubers are earnestly in favour of the regime of Xi Jinping. I think, I think it's, I, I said Luke, I think they're, they're either completely blind, it's a good business opportunity or more politically, there's something that they're trying to keep under wraps. Yeah. Um, one thing which makes me laugh here as well, it's quite funny. Um, obviously, last year we had the Black Lives Matter riots and straight afterwards you had uh, companies, universities, any and all institutions trying to get rid of their links to slave owners from the past or even relatives of slave owners like Plaston. As an example, uh, one example which I wrote about uh, when we were launched in September was the City University of London's Cass Business School. Now it was to 
get rid of the, the cast part of its name um, because uh, John Cass, who directed the Royal Africa Company and thought this was uh, not an appropriate name to have today. Yet one of its most recent explorations um, was the opening of a technology school in Chengdu in China, um, where, you know, we talk a lot about, um, and forgive me for the pronunciation, but Uruguay, um, where the, a lot of the camps are re-education camps, but even in Chengdu, um, there is uh, unthinkable persecution taking place, such as um, not too long ago last year, a, a Protestant church was ransacked and um, scores of its congregation were incarcerated uh, because they were of the wrong faith, say, as an example of that. Um, why is it that the institutions in Britain are so obsessed with the identity culture wars, yet pay no attention? Uh, and remember as well, we're talking about taking its name away from John Cass, who was alive hundreds of years ago, yet pays no attention to persecution which is taking place today. Well, it's, it, it's, it's, it's where the money is, right? I mean, um, your average company is, is, is bound by the wrists and ankles to the spending habits of young generations. Um, yeah. And it being that the millennial and to a lesser extent Generation Z is overwhelmingly progressive, it, it, in a purely most um, Machiavellian sense, it, it does make sense for them to pursue a progressive image. Um, However, I don't think what they're doing is progressive. I think it's just a, a form of cultural revolution. But again, I, I don't think they're thinking that far beyond the next payday. And what no, you said about, and what you said about the, the money, Sam, I mean, China is on course to become the world's next superpower, perhaps only superpower within 10 years. And they've got, um, they're an industrializing economy. They're growing a flourishing middle class that has lots of disposable income. And that's why all these companies are trying to sell products in China. I think the Premier League have signed contracts with um, Chinese state TV. And there's one player called um, Mesut Ozil, plays for Arsenal. He um, is a Muslim and he um, brought up um, China, Chinese um, incursion into the Xinjiang region and the persecution of Uyghur Muslims. And um, China, I think, banned Arsenal games from their state TVs and Arsenal in turn sort of sidelined the player a little which was absolutely malicious and that this was seems long ago now only two years ago yeah and so you see you see it with uh, Disney as well I mean a lot of movie um, companies uh, you know look at China and see a, a growing consumer market of up to a billion people I mean that's so lucrative um, and, you know, in, in, in a world where, you know, money is a false god, um, that's, that's more important than principles. You know, um, in, the, in, the Star, in the most recent Star Wars movies, I think, I think uh, the, they were required to effectively cut John Boyega out of the movie because he's black. Um, and on the posters, he's reduced to, you know, a, 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 a thumbprint on the, in, in the background. And um, it, it's another case of, you know, money talks and morality lags behind. A point on that obviously with money talking is trade which you've talked about and that um, one way in which people suggest we we fight back against this um, 
drying regime is to stop imports from certain areas to try and uh, buy from elsewhere. I mean, one of the one of Boris Johnson's calls has been to buy British, which is partly a sort of way of um, celebrating Brexit, but I think also a, a challenge to um, countries such as China who abuse their power. But being that we produce so little in this country and don't really have what you'd properly call a working class, a sort of manual working class, how far can we actually go with this threat? We can't say we won't buy anything from you anymore because then everything which we possess would disappear. Mm. How serious do you think the Chinese say would take a threat of, of wanting to limit imports from certain areas? Yeah, you, you, you made a good point. It is, it is presupposed on a degree of... Um, Reindustrializing the UK, which I mean, obviously, is going to take a long time. Um, there are other markets um, that you know we could um, import from, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it just shows not only the um, the, the moral questions around China, but also the the sort of macabrely impressive way in which China has um, gobbled up vast waves of our import market. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm not an economist. I'm not. I'm not a man. I, I honestly don't know. Um, I can I, I can say what I what I want to happen, but I, I can begin to tell you how to get there. And trying to find other markets would be difficult as well, because China has stretched its tentacles far and wide. It's got it's got military bases in Africa, and um, extract, extract resources from the continent. It's brought out vast swathes of infrastructure, not just in the UK but elsewhere, Israel, even Russia. So, it's the China holds all the cards, really, and it will hold them for a generation. If, if the West, wet, the West will go all in with few chips, which will not end well. No, even even major projects being uh, pursued in Britain now often have the the um, the large backing of of the, the Chinese state. I think even HS two, most of the the companies being contracted to run this. Are, are Chinese and, and one of the few British companies originally contracted had to pull out because it sort of ran out of money, it went bankrupt within the first couple of years, which presents a, a very large difficulty in and of itself. Yeah, and you know, and uh, I saw at the start of the year when, um, sorry, uh, last year, sorry, when um, China basically uh, tried to bring Australia to its knees um, over Australia's. Um, yeah. Uh, protesting of China's behaviour, it it you know it because Australia is a massive mining exporter and 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 China is a is a, is a big regional partner. Then they you know try to essentially wage economic warfare on Australia, which is, which now, is I think the most alarming thing around about China is its ability to bring nations to heel without firing a single bullet. Just the threat of, of, of stopping trade, things like yeah. that, are, are enough to. The implication. Yeah. We're, we're in a new, we're in a new type of warfare now. We've we've we lost the hot wars, we lost the cold wars. Now it's more of an information and economics. Well, that'll be fun to pursue, and I'm sure a voice which um, would be welcome hearing more from at this stage as we as we enter that new war that you described, Luke is uh, that of Sir Roger Scruton, uh, who, uh, to, to move away from the three main topics of the week, died roughly a year ago today, 
Sam, how much do you think his his voice is is necessary today, and what what might he say about some of the the current madness? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, anyone who's ever read Scruton, um, anything from you know how to be conservative to his work on architecture and art and music, will see someone who, without getting angry, without getting fired up, without you know owning the libs, so to speak, um, put forward the arguments for conservatism in a, such a beautiful and peaceful and, and gentle way. Um, and also he, he, he represented um, something for, you know, people in our circles to, to aspire towards, someone who is just you know, gentle and kind, but also is able to say the most profound things. And um, if, you, if you've ever seen his, uh, his debates in like Intelligence Squared and so on, um, he completely commands the space without, you know, raising his voice, getting angry. Um, and that's, you know, as, as conservatism moves away from the slightly vacuous, um, you know, uh, free market, free people sort, sort of rhetoric and into uh, a pursuit of, you know, beauty and high culture and tradition, um, no one did it better. Mm. As we as we look onto the main platforms, which people use today, um, especially social media, it's I think quite difficult to find who might provide in the decades to come from our generation a similar sort of respectful and calm and measured response to the problems of the day. Uh, someone who is able to talk to the opposing side whilst continuing to have a respect for them, especially in the, the generation of of memes and like you said the, the got you compilations and all this sort of rubbish um i think to to look back and to to read the words of of scrutinar uh it, it's certainly to help remedy some of the the headiness that we we can reach in these times yeah scrutin's death was, was a big loss for conservative circles and also represented this old world retreating into the abyss really and I don't know what the future of conservatism holds. It's always terrible to predict the future, as we all know. But if he were alive today, I, I know um, I'd be sure of something he, he would say. Now, from his writing, what originally turned him conservative was looking at the parish riots in the mm. early 60s. And he, he, uh, his, I think his words were the, the bourgeois throwing bricks at the proletariat, as in the young student, very committed, very hardened activists throwing bricks at working class police officers. So with, with the advent of the Black Lives Matter riots, so I'm sure he would write and say something very similar. Mm. Mm. Uh, well, we can only hope that people saw the riots last year and, and take a similar position. Uh, there's one, uh, again, I say amusing, but really it's, it shouldn't be, but it was quite an amusing video of uh, a, a march going along a street and, and the people inside their apartment blocks are are filming this video and cheering or saying, yeah, go on, go on, go on, get them. And um, the people in the street look up, see these cheering youths, pick up a brick and throw it into the window. And as soon as they do it, they say, hang up, we're on your side. Don't get us, we're on your side. Um, maybe that will have taught them a lesson. But actually, it's not the side that you want to be on, the one which threatens violence as an instant response to societal problems. Well, that, that's, that's something that I pointed out in my article for you this month, Michael, um, about future conservatism, which is um, one thing that, well, and it goes back to what you were saying, uh, Luke, about 
uh, Scruton being in Paris in, uh, I believe it was 68, and seeing um, those uh, uprising. I think what will happen is, um, buoyed on by the mirage of, of uh, hegemony, these people will continue to act in, you know, um, alienating and, and rather insane ways. And every day, more people will be pushed into a conservative reaction. Um, because you can you can open Twitter or open the Guardian or the New York Times and <clears throat> and you know gorge on all the all the propaganda, but that can't replace something that you see with your own eyes. You know, and mm. and this is only going to get worse as you know again as the illusion of um, hegemony in society sets in. Um, we're going to see more and more of this behavior until people start to realize that um, this isn't how we should be living. And, mm. and the, the promise of, um, you know, a more wholesome, gentle, communitarian um, outlook um, will become more and more appealing, I think, over the, over the next couple of years. Well, I think on that message of hope, before one of us descends into another corner of gloom we should possibly leave it here this week um three interesting stories again not all very positive but a lot of lessons to be learned from them and i think if we're to uh, respond properly to uh, problems as we move into the future then we need to make sure we're keeping a check on the way in which we respond to the issues of the day so we'll be back again next week for another episode of the week in review with three more speakers and three more topics thanks again for listening have a good weekend